This is an ABC podcast. The motorbike, uh, 350cc British-made Veloset, finished up down in Antarctica and we would ride it around on the sea ice. You're on the rock at the station and you've taken the oil out of the sump, you've heated up the oil on a stove and then you put it into the motorbike and you start it up. You know, and you only give it about a thousand kicks to get it started. You wheel it down to the sea ice and then you get on it and then you click it down into first gear, give it some accelerator, let the clutch out. And there'll be a lot of wheel spin, but it's not as bad as, say, river and lake ice. Sea ice is with the salt in it. Somehow it just seems to have a little bit of traction. You can get some traction. Then you take off and away you go, but you don't turn fast. Otherwise you'll fall over. Hello, I'm Ann Jones and on Off Track today, it's George. Dr George Cresswell, a physical oceanographer who has been possibly on more scientific voyages than anyone I've ever spoken to and who rode a motorbike across the sea ice of Antarctica. In 1960, he was a young man. I'd been at the University of Western Australia and I'd uh, studied physics and mathematics and an advertisement came up in the newspaper, go south to Antarctica, and I thought that's what I would like to do. So late 1959, the ship is loaded. It was the Thaladan, a Danish ship, not a very big one. The party that went down was 33 people and we were away from Australia for 15 months. We set sail from Melbourne. Immediately, most of us got seasick and it wasn't a great trip south until we got into the sea ice and that was very pleasant indeed. What that does, it dampens out the big waves and so all of a sudden, you're in mill pond conditions. And prior to this, we were all looking out for the first iceberg, spending a lot of time up on the deck. And after a while, icebergs become a little bit passe. And then as you get closer to Antarctica, and I was going to Mawson Station, you start to see the mountains, quite big mountains, poking up through the ice. And then eventually you arrive just off the station. And what you find is that one fellow has actually walked out on the sea ice, which is very thin at this stage. And you wonder about his safety. He wanted to welcome the ship when we were still about a mile out from the station itself. So we went into the into this into the harbour there called Horseshoe Harbour, and the old party they'd been down there for fifteen months. They were all waiting for us to arrive in a little cluster. Uh, there were two smashed up aircraft there uh, that uh, there'd been some disaster during the year when they got blown away in blizzards. So then we had about. A few weeks of unloading the ship because that's what you do. You know, it doesn't matter what your, your job is down south, you help unload the ship. It was all pretty much manhandled back then. The average wind speed at Mawson, I think it's over 20 knots. So one of the things that you're doing as you're walking down is making sure that you know the wind doesn't cause you any problems if the wind is high then you'll have your hand on a rope called a blizz line a blizzard line 
and they're spread all around the, the camp so that uh, you'll be walking down, the wind will be more than likely blowing, you'll be looking up at the sky, you know, admiring uh, dusk, you'll look out across the harbour, out across the sea ice and out to sea where there'll be big, big tabular icebergs, you'll look out and there'll be a few islands out there, you might glance behind us or off to the right and or left and you'll be seeing the mountains that are down there and they they're spectacular there's one at the back of Mawson Mount Henderson the radio supervisor and I in October went in and climbed that that was you know that was a long walk I think it was 15 kilometers in and 15 kilometers out and a climb up but of course you know you're a young person and you can do that sort of thing I'd have trouble driving it now The young George was working with an engineer called Ian Bird, and together they were to assemble a photometer at Mawson Station. This is a light-detecting device, and their mission was to record the different colours of the aurora. It was a double telescope system, and each of the telescopes... The light was collected by the mirrors and then focused onto a little angled mirror and then it was put through beam splitters. So from each telescope you got two beams of light and those two beams went through filters of different colours and they were the colours of the aurora. Do you get to actually see the aurora with your bare eyes when you're at Mawson? Oh, every, every night. I mean, spectacular displays. Look, the thing that gets you about the aurora is the colours and the fast movements. And there's like a lot of, it's like a lot of searchlight beams, but they're coming from above. And they're, say, green near the top and a whitish colour near the middle and a really vivid purple at the bottom. And then these searchlight beams are flying around all over the sky. It's quite stunning because you're on the what's called the auroral oval there where auroras are very common and so what happens to produce those ovals is the sun's emitting a whole lot of charged particles all the time as a solar wind so-called and because they're charged when they reach the earth's magnetic field they get influenced by it and each individual charged particle spirals down the field lines they're sort of focused into two ovals around the north and the south poles and when they strike the upper atmosphere then they cause the molecules to get excited and when they de-excite they emit the light and of course for half of the year it's almost completely dark all day and night at Mawson so it was ideal conditions for George to work at measuring these colours the nights were very long and it got to the stage where you're just so exhausted you just had to stop because you only had a couple of hours of a sort of dusk in the middle of the day You'd work, you know, for a few hours and then go down to the mess room, the the kitchen, to have something to eat. And you'd find people down there who couldn't sleep. They had insomnia. There'd be people playing chess or darts or watching movies. We had, I think, about 30 movies on 16mm film. So, you know, in 15 months, you get to know the films quite well. That That's it. There's nothing else. And it got to the stage where we didn't need the soundtrack on. You know, you could... People. One nice thing was that the Russians visited us a number of times in their equivalent of a DC-3 Dakota. They brought movies and they wanted to swap one of their movies for one of ours. And 
we had a variety of awful things. One was called The Fabulous Texan. It was a cowboy movie, and they wanted that. But what they gave us was uh, Swan Lake, the Bolshoi Ballet. And we, all of the people on the station, quickly shifted to becoming experts in ballet, and it stayed with us for the rest of our lives. How does that work to do a drop in from the Russians? Like, do they give you a bit of warning? Is there, or do they just sort of yeah, turn up out uh, of the yeah, nether? No, look, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of camaraderie down there between the different nations, and uh, so yeah, they'd let us know they were coming. They were going from one of their stations to another one, and we were partway there. They'd landed. Our airstrip was just flat ice, a little bit further inland from where we were. And our people would go up there and bulldozers and we'd dig holes. I, I say we, you know, uh, we'd dig holes and put in anchor points and things like that. One of the fellows in a different year from me had a good story. So the Russians had arrived and there was a storm going, a blizzard. The Australians had been up there helping dig the anchor points and so they all quickly went into the aeroplane. They stayed there during the blizzard and, you know, the plane would have been swished around all over the place. And he said they were cooking with little primer stoves on top of their fuel tanks and, you know, things like that that your OH&S would faint. <laughs> That seems to be a bit of a theme, George. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, one of the things that I did was I had a motorbike in Melbourne and uh, I didn't have much else in my life and I thought, well, I want to sell the motorbike before I go south and I couldn't, at least not for a good price. So I rode it down to the Thala Dan, the Danish, Danish ship, and I said to the coxswain, you know, do you want to put it on board? He said, yeah, no worries, just drain the petrol out of it and we'll put it on board. The motorbike, uh, 350cc British-made Veloset, finished up down in Antarctica and once the sea ice had formed, then we would ride it around on the sea ice. Now, when I tell modern-day Antarctic people this, they more or less faint because they've got to do a training course before they're allowed to walk on the sea ice and we would just head off on the motorbike and just go pretty much anywhere. What happened down there was that the clutch cable on the bike froze up quite often. And so then what you do is you put the bike into neutral gear, start it, and then kick it quickly into first gear. There'd be a lot of wheel spin, and then slowly you'd take off without worrying about a clutch. Um, and you got pretty good at that too. I don't recall coming off at speed, but you just keep going. But, you know, the bike goes and you go and you're sliding along to a certain degree with it. After the year that I was down there, three dozen bikes were taken down between 1960 and 1980. Two of them were lost through the sea ice. Uh, one fellow, it was a small bike, he reported how he was hanging onto the, one of the handlebars, try, handle grips, trying to stop it sinking, but in the end he had to let go. And then 
he had to run back to the station uh, two kilometres or so. He'd lost his boots because he didn't have them tied up and he was in his socks and so he ran back. But uh, another fellow, uh, his bike went through the sea ice at speed but he kept going and finished up on the other side. So that was the motorbikes. They were, they were quite a good experience. <laughs> And I think at the age 22, you think that you're indestructible. Mm. Uh, you have a little bit of common sense there, uh, and I think that's what carries you through. Well, you have common sense. I don't know that everyone does at the age of 22. So if you weren't scared, were you ever lonely? Because it is, you know, one of the most empty, in inverted commas, empty of human life anyway, places on earth. Well, um no, look, I didn't feel lonely. I was lucky, or we were lucky, in that we had 33 people and they all got on well together. There were no fights. Uh, and then the only instruction we had in preparation for going south, you know, from a point of view of um, psychology, etc., cetera, was um, never say anything that you'd be sorry about and never, ever throw a punch. And I think that's the way we all lived down there. So there might have been times when you were just busting to say something, you know, but you'd, you know, bite your tongue. Mm. And I think that's pretty good advice in life, actually. Certainly in relationships. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And did you have, what was there contact with uh, mainland Australia while you were in your 15 months in that first term? Okay, it all the ra- it was radio contact with Morse code, and so we had four radio operators and a radio supervisor, and we were allowed to send forty words per month, uh, and that was it, and receive forty words per month. So it's not even you know a, a Donald Trump signal, really. There was a program on Friday nights called Calling Antarctica, and Jocelyn Terry ran that program. And here she is, the girl that warms the hearts where the weather is cold, Jocelyn Terry. And uh, girlfriends would come on and talk to the blokes down there and things like that. So that was really very important. Well, hello there. This is your Girls Friday on the beam again to all the boys at Wilkes, Quarry Island, David and Mawson in Snowplay, Antarctica. And we send a warm greeting also to all our friends below latitude 50, which of course includes all the islanders of Campbell, south of New Zealand. Uh, I had a girlfriend who came on and said that uh, she was engaged to someone else. But that didn't really matter. Really? Look, back then, relationships were pretty platonic. And at, at age 22, one might have had, you know, several people that you were interested in. But uh, <laughs> Oh, it sounds like a golden age. <laughs> But I thought thought that when you got back from your first tour, you got married six weeks later. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very confusing story, George. Well, you know, I mean, after 15 months in Antarctica, you you know, you're starting to think about a variety of things. And and back (laughs) then, there was a tendency, there was a tendency to get married rather than to move in with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if you wanted to have a significant relationship, uh, then you got married. Yeah. Anyway, we we had a we had three kids and had a good marriage. Oh, it wasn't the same one that that dropped you on the radio, though. 
No, no, oh, no, different no, one. Okay, very, that's good. That's oh, good. Yeah, I don't we're know. Very good friends. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. We're very good friends. Yeah. I'm imagining that your work. You you constructed this piece of equipment. You start using it. You start exhausting yourself through the night. But as the days yep. grow longer and longer, that must mean that there's less and less nighttime hours for you to actually do that particular job. And that is so good. A lot of exploration was taking place both with dog teams and with tractors and uh, a tracked vehicle called a weasel. So in August, a party had headed south, I think five people with two tractor trains. So each train had a Caterpillar D4 tractor at the front of it and then a line of sleds and uh, with equipment and one of the sleds would have a plywood caravan on it and so the people would either sleep in there or eat in there or both. So two tractor trains had gone 300 miles down south. We had the aircraft flying in and out. So exploration was done, mountains were climbed by different people and surveying was done, geology. And then in November, they wanted a party to go in to bring back the two tractor trains. So four of us flew in in the Dakota. We did a lot of digging because the tractor trains had become covered in snow to a depth of a couple of metres. And so we were digging for what seemed like two weeks. The aircraft then flew out. We had enough fuel to get halfway home with the two tractor trains and we were going to get fuel drops from from the air. We got going. Well, the first thing that happened was we, we dug, you know, dug the tractor trains out and then the holes that we dug them out of had filled up with soft snow. So then one late evening, we'd been working all day and there was a case of, you know, forward ho and we started up the tractor trains and one drove into the hole that we dug that was full of soft snow anyway so that was our first job of getting a tractor out of a hole uh, we headed off and then we got a message that both aircraft had been destroyed the beaver had blown itself to pieces and the Dakota had disappeared. They were tied down about 15 kilometres or so inland from the station. Uh, so we weren't going to get any fuel drops. And it was pretty cold. And I was, yeah, okay, so there was one caravan and we could fit three people in it for sleeping. And the weasel, which was an all-metal vehicle, I slept in that. And so, you know, the temperature in there was ambient. About, on average, one day in three, we'd have a blizzard. The blizzards would last for three days and you couldn't do anything. So you just stay in the in the sleeping bag, you know, for as long as you were able, more or less in a, you know, half-stupid state. And then you'd, uh, the blizzard would stop, you'd do some more digging and uh, try and get the tractor started. The tractor, a big diesel engine, but it had a petrol engine to start it. And the petrol engine um, had a, a pull start. And so it was my job to pull the, the pull start on this thing, like a, a lawnmower, but a lot bigger. And uh, yeah, sometimes you'd pull it for, it seemed like a hundred or so times before it had started. We said to the officer in charge back at Mawson, well, how about, how about we just bring back one tractor train? And he said, no, 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 look, don't worry. We'll sort out something here. So we headed off with two tractor trains, got halfway home and ran out of fuel. In the meantime, we'd had 
tractors in crevasses and we'd spend you know long afternoons with chain blocks and digging holes and all that sort of thing. Our navigator, Noel Jennings from Tasmania, the late Noel Jennings, knew of a fuel dump that had been put in some years before and it was about 40 miles or so in front of us, let's say 60 kilometres or so. And our weasel vehicle had some petrol to get that far. So two people went off, found the fuel dump, brought back one drum. We filled up one of our tractors and then headed off with one train and got to the fuel dump and filled up and then uh, got all the way home. 1930 hours, Australian Eastern Time. And here she is, the girl that warms the hearts where the weather is cold, Jocelyn Perry. Well, hello there. This is your girl Friday on the beam again to all the boys that looks... So 15 months goes past and then all yeah. of a sudden you find yourself in a gaggle of men looking towards a boat that's coming towards you... What sort of yeah. impression do you think you made on those people that were, were coming down for their next tour of duty? Look, my feeling is back then that the old party, the one on shore waiting for the new blokes to come on, was always pretty arrogant. Okay, these guys coming ashore, they don't know anything. We we know it all, that sort of thing. Um, but the main thing that you're interested in back then is a whole lot of letters from home. The 33 men... You know, get their, get all their letters and disappear off to their little bunks and read and probably spend half a day reading letters from home. Yeah, because then, of course, you've got to help un- unload all of the supplies and yeah. things like that before actually boarding yeah. and, and heading back towards mainland Australia. That's right. Did you take your motorbike back with you? No, I didn't. So the the cook, the chef for the next year, Ted Giddings, he was from England, and I think he might have had a brother who raced at the Isle of Man on motorcycles. And he saw the motorcycle and fell in love with it. And when I was in Melbourne, the offer that I'd had for the bike was £29. So I said, OK, you can have it for £29. <laughs> and so he bought it from me, and he made the first sidecar in Antarctica. He used a wheel off a wheelbarrow and made a sidecar. And in fact, that was a really good idea because it spreads the load across the ice a little bit and you can carry things and it's much more stable. You have to develop new skills on the sea ice, you know, if you don't have a sidecar. Do you sometimes in quiet moments um, sort of travel in your mind and take yourself back to those places? Yes, I think I do. But it's like that, you know, I'm 82 and you do that with a lot of, a lot of aspects of your life. But certainly Antarctica is a special part of it. And of course, now, you know, there's probably only less than 10 of us alive from the party. But um, one looks at photographs and these blokes, they're still alive, you know, in your mind. It's such a vivid experience yeah, that's right. Actually, look, I'm, there's a photograph on the wall here and it shows my friend, Bill Kellis. He's got an ice axe. Uh, I'm down in a crevasse um, looking up. It's not a dangerous crevasse. And the sky is there with striated clouds and the Beaver aircraft is flying over. Um, 
So, yeah, Bill and I would go walking or motorcycling every Sunday afternoon and uh, have adventures, and that was good. George did some research about the motorbikes of Antarctica and found that his was one of 35 bikes that were taken down into the Antarctic in between 1960 and 1980. So I think George can start a bikey gang now for sure. Thank you to George Cresswell, who was an excellent sport for this interview, and to Matt Marison for suggesting that George be on this program. We also had some archive in there from a program called Calling Antarctica from Radio Australia in 1960, featuring the Girl Friday, Jocelyn Terry, and of course Tchaikovsky, with some of the music of Swan Lake, which George and I both adore. I also had help from Joanna Khan on this episode, and you can write to Joe and I at offtrack at abc.net.au. We love to hear from you. I'm Ann Jones, and this is Off Track. Remember, meet me here at the same time next time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. If they gave you a call tomorrow and said, oh, look, we need you down in Antarctica, uh, will you do another winter there? What would you say? Yes, I'll be there. <laughs> I thought you might say that. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.